0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Blacklist, where I discuss the lives and legacies of Black Hollywood. I know it hasn't been too long since the last episode of our first season, which is available in its entirety on SoundCloud and iTunes, but I felt inspired to come back with shorter episodes while I'm in the middle of preparing for the next full season, which will be back late this year. While I was preparing for that season and while I was writing the last one, one of the things I always enjoyed was the films. I love talking about films, and more than that, I love talking about black films. I love talking about black films that many people probably haven't seen, but definitely should see. So this mini season, that's exactly what I'm going to do. That's all I'm going to do. I'm gonna talk about six black films that I've selected at complete random that I enjoy hate, secretly enjoy, and love. This week, we talk about Dark Manhattan, the first all-black gangster film produced in Hollywood. Dark Manhattan is a 1937 crime drama produced by Randolph Cooper Pictures that was actually quite groundbreaking in its day because it was the first black gangster movie a la Humphrey Bogart and James Cagney. The film was so popular, in fact, that the theater that it was shown in had to turn people away due to lack of space. And since there was only one print of this film, it had to be shared by all of the movie theaters in Harlem. It had an unusually high production value for films of its kind, and Ralph Cooper, though uncredited, pulls triple duty in this film as its star, playing Curly, co-directing and co-producing this film— And Ralph Cooper is definitely someone who has a story worth telling as he was billed as the black Humphrey Bogard and was the founder and original MC of Amateur Night at the world-famous Apollo Theater in Harlem. But back to Dark Manhattan. Sam McDaniel is in this movie credited as Sam McDaniels. Now, the film opens on Larry B. Real Estate Expert's office where we meet our cast of characters. Mr. Lee, played by Lawrence Brooks, is leaving for the day, and Attorney Brown, played by Corny Anderson, is taking over in his absence. Lee and Brown discuss, over scotch, what should be done about a person who owes money to them. Lee then travels to a pool hall where everyone is very well-dressed given their presumed economic status, but this is said in the 1930s, so I guess this is casual for them. Lee rolls up chauffeurs, so you know he got money. And some nigga is standing at the door looking for trouble when he notices that everyone is distracted by the arrival of Lee. So this guy seizes his opportunity. He steals money, but is immediately caught because he just isn't a very good thief. But you know how terrible thieves make up for their shit skills by being skilled fighters. So of course he causes a fight. Some guy tries to break a pool stick over his head, but misses poorly because that's poorly shot and acted and edited and the thief pulls a knife on him and they tussle then somebody punches him in his face and knocks him out and they throw him out the back door maybe he isn't so good at fighting either and should just find a new profession altogether side note the light makes all the light-skinned people in this movie look like ghosts then we meet jackson played by sam mcdaniel the brother of the subject of our first episode, Hattie McDaniel, and we meet Curly, played by Ralph Cooper, as they discuss the big job that Curly has just secured, working for Mr. Lee. And everyone in the pool hall refers to him as Mr. Lee, the richest banker in Harlem, in case you were wondering. Jackson then gathers all the gentlemen of the pool house over to congratulate Curly on the job that he secured for him, so Curly can do him, quote, favors, unquote. And he gives Curly $200 for some unexplained reason, and they party all night. The men in the pool hall ask Curly to dance for them, and soon everyone is dancing to no music at all. Then we go back to Lee's office on Curly's first day of work. He enters just head to toe in white, and all the employees, who are surprisingly overwhelmingly dark-skinned women, are staring at him because he looks woefully out of place. But this doesn't dampen his excitement. Mr. Lee informs Curly amidst his excitement about his job that this is not love, it isn't war, it's business, and no underhanded stuff will be tolerated. Mr. Lee says if Curly proves himself in his job that he'll give Curly a district to oversee. Then Curly is introduced to all the staff, and this is where his true character starts to come out, because he is introduced to a man behind the bank counter, and Curly says he's a good man to know, to which the man replies, oh, I just work here. And Curly says, you're still a good man to know. Then some of Lee's men take Curly to lunch, where they run into the young, beautiful, and impeccably dressed Flo Gray, Lady of the Big Boss and Curly is smitten, even after he is informed that he doesn't have a shot in hell, to which he replies that he does. Well, okay then. Later, Larry is told by Brown and Flo that he needs to rest in a vacation, to which he replies no, like any stubborn idiot on the verge of death. But then we go back to Lee's office, and Lee is now referred to as LB, like another famous boss, and it seems that in the short amount of time, Curly has worked his way up through the ranks of this banking office, much to the dismay of the long-time, loyal employees who are curious of Curly's work and his methods. He has a better desk than them, is arguably better dressed, implying that he makes more money, but all he does is request reports of other districts. He's bossing people around who have worked there for years, but LB says for everyone to do what Curly says, which I find strange and they never explain, but moving on. Also, Curly now has an assistant. What the fuck kind of work can he be doing that he gets an assistant that quickly? Later, LB asks Curly to pick Flo up at the Congo because he's busy working. A huge mistake because when Curly leaves LB's office geeked, he tells his assistant that he's going out for a while and says it might be an hour and it might be longer. Well, then he gets into his car and the police stop him before he pull off, questioning his motives, talking to him as if he were an idiot and accuse him of things that they have no proof he has done just yet because cops are the worst. So Curly goes to pick up Flo and he is trying and trying and failing to impress her. And it is at this point that his ambition comes to the surface. Curly says, one day I'm going to be the biggest guy in all of Harlem. Side note, this movie is called Dark Manhattan, but it takes place in Harlem because it is the Manhattan for dark people. But back to Flo and Curly. Curly talks to Flo as if he has known her forever, but nigga, you all just basically met and she's simply not feeling his bullshit right now. So he acquiesces. Then we fade to Flo having dinner with LB, who brings up that he's not well, very conveniently. But LB, being a stubborn man, still orders another bottle of wine and of course, He has a heart attack right after the toast. His boys take him home and the doctor comes to him, boss shit only, and he lays on the couch in agony and the doctor orders him to rest. And then very weirdly to me, at least and to everyone around him, LB orders Flo to tell Curly to take things over in his absence. And Curly tries to flirt with her on the phone, even after she tells him the bad news and she hangs up on his ass. Rightfully so. Then Curly glides into Elby's office, feeling the power that he craves so much, becoming tangible. And outside, in the office, the gossip spreads and spreads, and they start shit-talking Curly because Curly has been in charge for five minutes, and he's already ordering LB's men to help him commit a crime. He hasn't even been in charge for a full day when he and LB's goons go to a coffee shop and ask the owner about how his business is doing, to which Curly replies that he has ways to help. To which the owner responds that he don't do business that way. And then Curly punches him and the goons ruin his store. Talk about zero to 100 real quick. Then there's a sequence of numbers crimes in Harlem that escalates and escalates and the gamblers are getting stronger and stronger. Meanwhile, LB is still bedridden and LB is the only one who can't see that Curly is trouble. He is pleased with the work that Miss Hall is reporting to him every day. This work is False, of course, or at least it's not the whole truth, but LB doesn't catch on to the fact that the growth that they are seeing just doesn't add up, but he has money on his mind. But the Harlem Police Department is not going to roll over as easily. The all-black police department is put on high 24-hour alert in order to clean up the streets. In the midst of all this madness, the committee of Harlem bankers, minus Curly, discuss the problems that they have had and demand LB comes to the meeting tonight to explain why all of their banks have been suffering in the 10 days that he has been on leave. I'll repeat, it's only been 10 days! When news gets back to LB that his presence is demanded, it is revealed that they've been giving LB fake newspapers. And Flo is trying to get Curly to have some kind of conscience and fix this mess that he created. But all he can do is continue to hit on Flo. And when she asks him the question that no one asks yet, though the majority of this 70-minute film is over, he reveals the truth about his sad childhood and says he's going to get out of life everything that he missed as a kid and nobody is going to stop him. Then there's a barbershop scene, and I love a barbershop scene. Something to know about me. There's nothing I love more in films than black people and any variation of an Italian mafia, and those two groups of people love for shit to go down in a barbershop. Honestly, there are fewer tropes blacker than a barbershop. Of all of the barbershops in Harlem, the police chief and Curly are surprised that they run into each other at this barbershop in particular. The Chief lets Curly know that he's on to him and for the first time in this movie, Curly shows some genuine emotion. He is shook that anyone might be on to him. Then the meeting happens and everyone is furious at LB for allowing Curly to hurt them. He reveals that he had no idea that this was happening, but they don't believe him because his bank is the only one and his men are the only men who have remained safe throughout this whole debacle, which is more than suspicious. And Curly is quiet as a church mouse, but Elby apologizes and promises to do right by them and promises that the reign of terror will end. Once the two are finally alone, Elby chastises Curly, fires him, and threatens to send him back to the gutter. But then the tables turn. Curly tells L.B. that he's now his partner and then he's got half of the bank and he has doubled the business and threatens to tell the bankers that LB knew what was going on these past two weeks. He says they will not be returning the money that was stolen. Curly says they will be doubling the profits again through another one of these schemes and he tells LB to take a vacation and he'll take care of everything. So the bankers committee meet again to figure out how to defeat Curly who just got this job two weeks ago. What was he doing before this? Where did the guys from the pool hall go? Then we go back to Curly, who is getting ready for an event, and he tells his doorman not to wait up for him. The event is some sort of variety show that Flo is singing in, because he's still trying to war. Even though she's let him know that she's clearly not fucking interested, she sings a song and makes eye contact at someone for the entire time, and everyone at the hall is looking at her. Because the lights are still up in the theater for some reason, he did it. He won the girl! Curly celebrates the fact that he's won Flo's affections and asks her to join him for a drink. As this message is relayed to Flo in her dressing room, the most shocking revelation in this entire film is made. Flo has a light-skinned maid. Which is wild, because honestly, the storyline is so fucking tired. And I guess Flo felt the same way, because she and her beautiful, well-tailored costumes and perfectly coiffed hair, complete with slick edges, decide to join this man for dinner. But Flo looks constipated the whole fucking time she's sitting there with Curly. But they all toast to their success, and they leave together. But then we cut to Curly in his office, and don't even get to see what happened! But then Flo calls and they set a date for the evening and it is revealed that they've been seeing each other for weeks, which we find out through exposition from supporting characters, which is what you do when you have less than 15 minutes left and lots of story left to tell. Flo asks him to take her away to a home in the country, but he can't quit the business because it's growing. Only if she'll wait just a little while, which she agrees to, but this can only end badly or Flo in her nice-ass fur coat, a true kept woman, an icon. Then we fade to Curly, talking to the banking association, promising to place a member of his staff in all the banks for safety, saying it'll put an end to the so-called reign of terror. But he has a smuggest look on his face, and you just know he's bullshitting them. And the second he leaves, the bangers are the definition of, I'ma be quiet when he's here, but when he leave, I'ma be talking again. They are furious, because he's full of shit and evil! But still, he is fine as hell. Then a character named Butch Williams is introduced with like 10 minutes left in the film, talking to Curly's business partners, trying to undercut him. To his business partners! Butch Williams sends goons to threaten Curly, saying he's going to take over the numbers game in Harlem. But Curly says that Butch Williams and 50 men can't run him out of Harlem. They're going to dance to my music. Well, all right then. Now the film is picking up speed in the fourth act, because next the police raid Curly's office and question him. And we find out that Curly has no parents, no family, yada, 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 yada. And the police chief insinuates that he has something on Curly. Once again, but all cops do is lie, and Curly knows this. Then Flo, impeccably dressed as usual and planning to meet Curly, overhears a plan and runs away, highly upset. Then we cut to some men parked on the corner planning to shoot Curly, but it is interrupted by a man who walks Curly to his car, and narrowly he avoids his death. Then of course, like any good gangster movie, they have a car chase shootout and Curly gets hit in the arm, but manages to park his car, and because he has nowhere to run, he literally runs into a church, an active church service with a gun. Did I mention this film is only 70 minutes long? Moving on. Fate to flow, spin with Curly, Flo is trying to convince him that this lifestyle isn't sustainable and he's living on coffee and cigarettes, the diet of champions. And we find out that they've burned down the office and Curly runs to the war, upset that this empire that he's built is falling apart. And then Flo calls the police to get them to save Curly from Butch. Bitch, how dare you? Now we're in Curly's office where Butch, Williams, and his men are hiding. Butch Williams, always strapped, apparently, is ready for Curly, who walks in with two guns and no protection, and just starts shooting into the air, not taking cover at all, and is shot at least five times. And then the police arrive, once he's dying. And of course, Flo arrives to see him on the ground, dying, and she sings, very poorly, as he's laying dying in her arms, and I'll admit, I laughed. Actually, Curly is dying very slowly as he has time to make up with the police chief before he dies, but then he dies. The end. Woo! That fourth act turned it the fuck out. All those twists and turns had me on the edge of my seat, but a good fourth act cannot always save a film, especially if the first three were pretty bad. The acting was so surface level, none of these actors looked physically comfortable in their characters. None of these actors had a screen presence at all, with the exception of Curly, but that only because he had the most screen time. The sound was piss poor, and it was staticky the whole time, and I blame that on the error and the resources available to Black Frigators, but the story was jumbled together like a ball of mush, and the whole movie is grainy and utilizes a lot of wide shots, so we don't get a ton of reaction shots and can't really empathize with these characters. The sound is so bad in this movie that there's static noise all through the film. And the underscoring is moving faster than the film, and it doesn't match the tone with some of the scenes. But these are some beautiful black people. And the costume designer and hair and wardrobe crew really did an amazing job of making these actors look high-class, slicking their edges perfectly, and perfectly parted and quaffing black hair throughout a very physical film. For that, I give this film three out of ten slicked edges, because that element truly captured me. Next week, we travel to the land of Paul Robeson. And finally, we leave New York! Thank you for listening to this episode of The Blacklist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and like this podcast on itunes and leave us a five-star review if you feel so inclined i know it seems like such a small thing but it does go a long way and if you want to learn more about us please like us on facebook at the black dash list and follow us on twitter at the blacklist pod and also feel free to follow my personal twitter at mariah N. woods all episodes of the blacklist are written narrated edited and produced by mariah woods me until next time